0: This morning's thought is very basic. It's very straightforward. Um, The the things that I'm going to present this morning, none of them are my thoughts at all. They're not not my interpretation. They're not my not my opinion. These things we're going to read from the Bible, and we'll just put them together as the Bible puts them, and we're going to. uh, draw Our conclusions based on what the Bible has to say. So, I guess the first thing I want to say is these, these things are not my thoughts, these things are not sort of my filthful philosophy or opinion. Um, but uh, I'll leave you to decide what, uh, what the outcome of, of these scriptures is. If you want a title for this talk, it is What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? And I guess there's a bit of a clue in the the title. It's got nothing to do with your parents. We uh, we heard it twice this morning, and and I guess we've got a a good mix in our fellowship of people who've either grown up in the Lord or other people who've come along and they've a bit later on in life, and and we've got kind of people from all walks of life in our fellowship as well. The question is, what do I have to do to be saved? And to answer that question, we need to ask another question, which is, what is the purpose of any religious organization what's the purpose of any religious organization? many religious organizations they provide many important social programs and they, they no doubt they do a lot of good in in our society and um, some religious organizations you know provide education about the Bible and their perceived nature of god and um and uh, and they They also, in some cases, provide things that are are not wholesome for the community, but um, that's one side of the coin. But surely, if you think about the the purpose of a religious organisation, the only possible reason for existence of any religious organisation, whoever it is, is to lead people to a salvation. Right? That's got to be the point. If, if, you're, if you're looking to set up any kind of religious organisation, the end goal has got to be to lead people to return salvation. Because if it's not, you may as well be a social club. You may as well just be somebody who's got some nice social programs in place and have nothing to do with God. Because really, religion, its, when you boil it all down, religion is about your relationship with God, and the reason you need a relationship with God is because that's where your eternal life So ultimately, if we're going to talk about running a religious organization or having any kind of religious group, the only possible reason for having it is to lead people to their eternal salvation. All the social programs and Bible education in the world are a waste of time because salvation way is not being accurately preached or taught. So what is the way of salvation recorded in the Bible? And as I mentioned, none of these things are my thoughts. These things we're going to read from the Bible. And, and firstly, if we're going to talk about the Bible, context is important. Context is really important. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the discussions and a lot of the arguments about, um, about the things that the Bible says come from the fact that people don't talk about the context of the particular scriptures. They'll take one or two little bits and pieces, and they'll sort of cobble them together with a few of their own thoughts maybe, and they'll end up producing a message, which isn't what the intention of the Bible is at all. So we need to, we need to deal with context. We need to deal with what it is we're actually talking about. We currently live, in 2017, in what's called the New Testament Age, or what what's become known as the New Testament Age. And that means that we live after the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was a bit of a pivotal time in God's relationship with human beings. And we live after that time. If we lived before that time, this story that the things that I'm telling you this morning would be a very different story. We live after the time in history when Jesus Christ walked the earth, did the things that he did, was crucified, buried, rose again, and prove that he risen again to what lots, lots of people, and would then take on the to heaven. Because of that, because Jesus lived, died, and rose again, we have access to a method of salvation which was not available at any other time previously in history. So before Jesus Christ arrived on the scene, the method of salvation that we now have available to us was not available to anyone else. So living at this time in history, 2017, also means we have access to a complete and readily available Bible now. It's not readily available necessarily in necessarily in every country in the world, and in fact, we were talking, Lisa um, and I were talking yesterday about um, uh, one of the sisters in Adelaide. This is the hotter, she says hotter. So I'm saying hotter, but anyway, um, I've also heard cooler, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, and she was she was talking, she and Lisa spent a bit of time together at the kids camp, um, she went able to help out at the kids camp and, and she was telling um, some of the conditions about um, people in Iraq and, and she's she Iranian, she's Persian um, comes from Iran and she was talking about the persecution of Christian minorities in Iran and apparently in Iran if you have a Bible then you are in big trouble that's all they they don't need to be able to to be able to prove anything else about your beliefs or who you are, if you own a Bible, you can be in big trouble, including being trapped in jail and other whole sorts of horrible things. If you're, um, if you're thought to be Christian and you try and escape, um, and not, not put too find a point on it, at least didn't actually ask what, what would have meant yeah. when she said this, but she said they take the skin off. So, so being Christian, isn't without its uh, challenges in various parts of the world. However, most of the parts, of, most parts of the world that most of us live in, Bibles are readily available, and, and there are many reasons we believe that the Bible is complete in its current form. But um, but we have access to the Bible now, which is an important part of the context of this discussion about what do I have to do to be saved? Right. So that's all the preface. Um, what are the steps? And, and like I said, this is a very basic talk. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of breaking things right back down to the most basic steps. And and some of this will will exactly will have come from our conversation on Friday night. Jackie and I had a conversation on Friday night about about the steps of salvation, and we were hoping to have a uh, you know a young fellow by the name of what who's uh, who's been very interested in these these questions. And, uh, and so there was a, we were hoping that there was maybe a few more that we were going to listen to this morning. But anyway, we'll pass on. It's good for us to uh, remind our Lord Speaking of scriptures, speaking of the New Testament, let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. Right at the very start of the New Testament, many of you will be aware that Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And this is also the start of what we call Jesus' ministry. So um, Jesus was, for the first 30 years of his life, Reasonably unremarkable, and we touched on that last week a bit. Um, at the age of twelve, like I said, he, he showed a bit of a, a, he sort of astounded a few people with things that he understood um, when he went the synagogue, but or the temple. But basically, um, for the first thirty years of his life, we don't really know what happens very much. But we see here in uh, Matthew chapter three, we're talking about a guy named uh, John, who can't known as John the Baptist, or or John de Dipper, in uh, Johann de Dippo, I think it is in Dutch. But uh, we're going to read here in uh, in verse one. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, "Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And if we skip over to uh, the next chapter, in chapter four. From that time, in verse 17, sorry, verse 17, chapter 4, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this repent word is actually our first step. The the word repent in uh, in Greek comes this, this Methano Methano. Anyone who's Greek here can correct me on that later. But it means change one's mind for the better. It means to heartily amend your ways with abhorrence of one's past sins. And in uh, in Pastor Darrell's uh, explanation in a talk that I heard recently, he said to quit it and go a different way. I.e., to have even the most basic hope of salvation. You have to be willing to do things God's way. So that's the, that's when we're getting into salvation. One of the things that Jesus first spoke about right at the start of his of his of his um of his ministry, and even before that, we see that in uh, in John the, John the Baptist was walking around. The first thing he was telling people to do, even before sort of Jesus' story had unfolded, was to repent. And that's an old-fashioned word these days. I mean, it's not. Like if I, if I went to work and, and and said, "Sorry, you're going to have to repent from that decision," people would be going, "What are you talking about? Repent? You're something about a Bible you know?" Um, but but repent is an old-fashioned word, and it's not something we terribly we sort of spend terribly much time on. And in fact, you may not necessarily hear very much about it, even in mainstream churches in the States, these days, because it's it, it's a little bit confronting being told. That you are, not, are going the wrong way, and God wants you to stop, quit it, to turn around, to heartily amend your ways, and be willing to go God's way, that's something that a lot of people don't like to do. It cuts, Because it means that we have to suddenly defer or be willing to defer to someone else to a higher power. And in our Self-determinate, self-determined society where we get to choose what we want to do and I'll do what I want when I want and if I feel like it. In all of that mentality that's very present in the world today, saying that no, I'm going to stop, I'm going to turn away from my ways, I'm going to go a different way, God's way, that's very unpopular. It's very hard for some, for people to do, but the reason it's important is because it means that we're willing to swallow our life. It means that we're willing to humbly approach the Lord and say, Lord, I'm willing to go your way. And without having done that, none of the rest of the steps of salvation are going to make any sense. That's why I'm, uh, that's why I'm dealing with this first, and that's why I believe that when when Jesus, it says here, from that time Jesus began to preach, the very first word he said was the N. The very first word he's recorded he's had a bit of a running with the devil before this time and we read about that last week about that time of temptation and, and the way he responded to the devil when we see here from that time Jesus began to preach the very start of his ministry the very first word he used was repent be willing to go God's way be willing to stop your direction, be willing to quit whatever it is you're doing and go God's way, that's step number one Actually, we will look at another uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. So Peter's sort of up towards the back there. And, you know, it's a whole bunch of little little letters that were written by different people. So Peter wrote a couple of letters and in, in the second letter that he wrote to uh, the people you can see here in uh, chapter 3 and in verse 9 it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but his long-suffering, or he's got a bit of patience with us, Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if I said, not willing that any should be hungry, but that all should be fed, that means that you fix the hunger with the food, doesn't it? And this here means that you fix the perishing with the repentance. When you read this, it says, the Lord's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we see here that repentance has got something to do with getting away from perishing. Like if the Lord's going to prevent people from perishing, He's saying the cure is repentance. And that all should come to repentance. So the Lord's will, ultimately, what the Lord's hoping for is that everyone will repent. Everyone will turn to Him. That's what He wants. And that's very different To to the the portrayal you see sometimes of a God who's this vengeful master who's just wanting to strike everybody down, send people to hell. That's not the God we see here. The God we see here is not willing that any should perish, but there is a condition to that. Everyone should be able to come to repentance. That doesn't mean everyone will. And unfortunately, we see that in the world today, but as I mentioned before. There's an unwillingness to turn to the Lord and go the Lord's way. There's an unwillingness to repent. There's an unwillingness to go, yep, I've got it all wrong. I want to go your way. And because of that unwillingness, we see here, unfortunately, there will be some perishing. But that's not the Lord's will. He doesn't want to condemn people to eternal, eternal damnation or any of that sort of thing. While we're talking about that, Let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter three, or go back to that story in Matthew chapter three, where we were just before. Once again, we're right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Still, so we've got the uh, we've got the repentance happening. So John says here uh, in verse Matthew chapter three, and in verse eleven, I indeed baptize you with with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I am not worthy to bear, he shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, we're going to touch on some of these points a bit later, but we see here that with the repentance, John says baptism is 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 an important feature. And we're going to see here, then in verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptised of him. Jordan was a long way from Galilee. But Jesus walked a long way, and I don't believe it was just because he wanted to see his mate, John. One of the reasons Jesus walked a long way from Galilee to Jordan was because there was a lot of water there. We're going to see why that's important in a minute. So he walked from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptised of him, but John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptised of thee, and comest thou to me. And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfil all righteousness. For he said, John, I understand your objection, mate, but let it rise for the moment, because this thing is important. You baptising me, right under the water here, is important to fulfil all righteousness. Then he suffered him. said at the end of verse 15, or, or then John allowed it. And Jesus, when he was baptised, went up straightway out of the water. Now, here's another really important clue. The word baptised or baptism comes from a Greek word baptizo, and that word means to submerge. And in fact, if the way they, they talk about a ship being sunk is it, baptizo, it means it's gone under, or to clean by dipping or submerging. And in fact, if you were to read um, a, a, a Greek recipe, about maybe preserving vitriols or something like that. Anything that you have to push under vinegar or whatever to preserve it. The preserving process is called it? That's what it's, that's the process is to submerge something under for, uh, for preservation. So we see this word here, uh, and as I said, the, 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 um, uh, the Dutch word that, that we, the, the, the Dutch name for John, is your hand the dipper? It means the dipper is someone who dipped right under. And the reason this is important is because it's got nothing to do with just sprinkling someone with a bit of water. The sprinkling process doesn't relate at all to what happened to Jesus Christ here and what Jesus himself humbled himself to be part of. He went, like I said, a long distance to make sure there was enough water and we see here that it says, he went up straightway out of the water. So he must have been down in the water to come up straightway out of the water. So the process of baptism is important to be right under, That is so right under, submerged under the water. And uh he went up straightway out of the water. Uh, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And as he see, Jesus' ministry then started from this point, and he went about baptising from people. So baptism is important. We're going to look at uh, Romans chapter six to work out a little bit more about why this this process of baptism is important. So in Romans chapter six, and in verse three, know you not, or, or don't you know? that so many of us, as, as were baptised into Jesus Christ, were baptised into his death. Now once again, as I said, context is important. This book is being, or this letter, is written to the Romans or the church that was in Rome at the time. Now, the the explanation here is an explanation to people who have already been baptised. People who were baptised right under the water, and the reason Paul is is He's drawing attention to this here. He's he's drawing an analogy between the death of Jesus Christ and our baptism. And the analogy goes like this. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. Therefore we are buried. Now I've got that word underlined in my Bible. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We're going to talk about walking in newness of life a little bit later on, but at the moment we're going to keep reading. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. The word that gets used here, buried, raised up, planted. Those words mean, Concept, they're all concepts we're very familiar with. When we have someone who, who, our know, natural senses them, and Zoe uh, and I and a few others went to a funeral of this week of a, a, a guy knew well who, who, who died, and the process is we bury him. That's what happened. He, he something that has died. John here, uh, sorry, Paul here is saying we are buried in baptism, and it says in verse uh, four into death. The symbol of baptism is important because it signifies that we are willing to put to death our old life. And this comes from that step one. Remember what step one, repentance? I want to turn away from my old way of life. Jesus' answer was, if you want to sort of turn away from your old way of life, bury it. And I'll go, go so far as to show you how the process works and I'll take it to the end degree and be physically buried. And if you want to join me in that new life, you need to demonstrate that you want to bury your old way of life. Remember, the title of this talk is What Do I Have To Do To Be Saved? Something you have to do to be saved is to bury your old life. Now, you have to be willing to bury your old life, and that's step one. Once you've got to that point and you've buried your old way of life, it talks about here being raised in the newness of life. That means that you have, by the act of burying your old way of life, demonstrated that you want God to provide a new way of life for you. We're going to get to that very soon as well. One more verse about uh, baptism. Just in case there was any doubt, let's turn to Mark, chapter 16. Again, the Gospel of Mark. And once again, context. Jesus has, uh, at this stage in, in the story, Jesus has lived his life, he's been had three years of ministry, he's been crucified, he's been buried, he's risen again, and here we see that he's about to sort of leave his disciples behind and head off into the wild blue yonder. And we see here in verse fifteen of Mark chapter sixteen, he said unto them, Go you into all the world and preach the gospel or the good news to every creature or every person He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Or judge, that word means. Open to judgment. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. That makes it pretty pretty certain, doesn't it? There isn't too many ways you can read that scripture and get out of the fact that you need to be baptised. And and I guess in illustration of that fact, many many organisations these days readily agree yes, you need to be baptized. Their definition of what baptism, baptism is, quite often, is very different to what the Bible's definition of baptism is. But many, many organizations if you went to a religious organization and said, I want to be baptized, they'd say, oh yes, we've got a way to we'll organize that for you, and we'll come over here and we'll you on the head or something. Or even you can take your baby to go and get baptized. but Which, once again, is totally missing the point, because we were just reading in Romans there about how that baptism is a willful burying of your life, of your old life. And babies can't do that. They're flat out deciding whether to breathe or keep their eyes open or shut. Babies can't make any decisions about their eternal life. This decision must be made in concert with the repentance. And when when you repent and you're ready to be burying your old life, baptism is the very next step. Now we're getting to the fun bit. Uh, step 3, so we have got repentance, being baptised. Step 3, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now remember we started in Matthew chapter 3, and we've actually already read this verse, but we're going to read it again. We've got a bit of, bit of fresh context now. Johan the Dipper, he's talking here and he says, I indeed baptise you in verse 11, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I indeed baptise you with water unto repentance, Step one, step two. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptise you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, we don't see Jesus going about and baptising people. It's not spoken about specifically, but Jesus went about baptising people with the Holy Ghost and fire during his ministry. He talked a lot about it. And, and and if you were to go, go and read through the, the Gospel of John in what, chapter 14, 15 and 16, Jesus lays out this whole baptism of the Holy Spirit there. And we're actually going to have a look at the start of John now, so if you turn to John, John chapter 3. Once again, context is important. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is the same story, right? It's the same story Four times over, from four different viewpoints, but it's exactly the same story. It's like it's like you had four reporters who've been involved in a particular incident, and all four reporters have an account. And so sometimes the things that the reporters say, you know, will, will match exactly. You know, the guy was wearing an orange vest, and all four guys say, yeah, the guy was wearing an orange vest. But but then there's other times there might be a detail that only one of them noticed. The guy had a had a nightclub stand on the back of your hand. <laughs> you know, only one of them noticed that. And so that might only appear in one of the in one of the Gospels. Um, we're reading here in John chapter 3 about a conversation that seems to only have been recorded in one of the Gospels, and it sees it talks about here that Jesus was talking to a guy named Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews. He was someone who knew his stuff. He was he probably was right up there on philosophy, he was right up there on religious teaching, and he comes to Jesus. By night, he doesn't want to be seen to be sort of resourcing with Jesus at this time, but he comes to Jesus by night and he sort of acknowledges that there's something special about Jesus. And we see here in verse 3 that Jesus' response to that kind of, that kind of acknowledgement, that bit of cluttering up that he could then start with was, we see here in verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, Except the man be born again, he cannot see, and that means comprehend or understand. He cannot see or comprehend or understand the kingdom of God. This guy Nicodemus is a natural man, and he thinks of natural things. And when God said, or when Jesus said, "You to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again," he goes, "What? How can I be born again? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big guy. How, how, how am I going to go back to my mother's womb and be born again?" Jesus says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a the man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the Kingdom of God. He cannot enter into, unless you've been born of water and the Spirit, you can't enter the Kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, You must be born again. And then as I was talking with Jackie on Friday night, the next verse is a really key verse in this whole being born of the Spirit. Right? It seems to be talking about winds, this next verse in verse 8. This word winds here comes from a Greek word, pneuma. And this Greek word pneuma, everywhere else in the New Testament, it's been translated as a very specific word. It's been translated as the word spirit. In this and only in this spot it's been translated as we. Okay. So we are quite within our rights to look at this verse here and, and know that Jesus was talking about the pneuma, the spirit. And he says here, the spirit bloweth where it listeth, or breathes where it chooses. It's also a, a, an accurate translation. The spirit breathes where it chooses and thou hearest the sound thereof. Now this word sound is not just any sound, you know, it's not, that's a sound, but this word here is referring to phonos, and phonos is a particular kind of sound. And to give you a clue about what phonos is all about, we teach phonetics in school, don't we? Our kids learn phonetics, and how they we say things? This thing is a telephone, phone. Phonos is all about voice. Phonos is all about voice and language. So we see here, the spirit breathes where it chooses and you hear the voice thereof but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. So this scripture isn't about winds, it's not about the breeze blowing around in, in random ways and you know, so is everyone born of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that we've got sort of just walked around the place like the breeze, which is one way you could read it first. Mm. The, the original intent of what Jesus was saying to this man was, the Spirit breathes where it chooses and there's a voice that accompanies the Spirit, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So Jesus was saying here, if someone born of the Spirit, you'll hear the voice of the Spirit. Let's turn to Acts 2. Once again, context. Jesus Christ has, at this stage of the story, this is happening after the four Gospels, so after the story of Jesus Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and so on, he's been raised up into heaven. He's told his mates, his closest mates, to go and wait for the promise of the Father. Um, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. He was saying to them just before this and and he told them to go and wait in Jerusalem. And, and they did. They went, like they went and they waited for about a week. And still nothing really sort of happening. They finally kind of waiting. Anyway, they finally get to this time when it's the day of Pentecost. And we see here in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like of fire, and it sat upon each of them, or diverse tongues, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is being baptised by the Holy Spirit. This is being born again, like Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. This is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can go on, and, and, and once again, I encourage everyone to read each of the chapters that I've mentioned here to get the full context of all of these scriptures. For the sake of time, I'm not able to go through all of the, the verses in these chapters to give you the full context. I encourage you to do it for yourself. But you will find, as you read through this, and particularly Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he gives an explanation of what's been what's happening. If we skip over to verse 33, Peter is talking to this crowd of people who've gathered when they have heard 120 people praying at the top of their lungs in tongues, this gathers a crowd and Peter gets talking to them and he says um, uh, verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, he's talking about Jesus, um, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. So Peter was saying you guys can tangibly observe there is a tangible evidence that goes with being born of the Spirit. These guys here who have received this Holy Ghost that Jesus said he was going to pour out, you can see and hear the evidence of that. There is tangible evidence here. You guys, there was no denying like, that they could see and hear something because that's what had brought this crowd to the place. They have gathered because of what they could see and hear. And so I guess, to, to put a finer point on it, receiving the Holy Ghost isn't something that happens without any tangible evidence. Receiving the Holy Ghost is not something which is just a, a, accompanied by, a, by a, maybe a warm feeling in your heart. And I, I'm not wanting, I guess, I'm not wanting to mock people who perhaps have been told that's what the, 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 the feeling that accompanies receiving the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not something that the Lord wants us to be unsure about. Receiving the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, being born of the Spirit is not something that the Lord wants us to be in any way doubtful or unsure about. There's a tangible, positive experience that happens when people receive the Holy Spirit and we see here that it was consistently evidenced by speaking in tongues. And we can go right through the New Testament and go to many other examples. And in fact, there's an example of a guy called Cornelius, which is a great example uh, uh So Peter and a couple of his Jewish mates went, and they actually broke the law. They went and took him into a Gentile's house, and they spoke to this Gentile, who was a guy who was faithful to God. And and we see here that this guy's family, this guy and his family, they received the Holy Ghost. And and Peter's mates who were <coughs> Peter mates who went with him, they got um they got quite surprised that because they could see that on the same in the same way that they received the Holy Ghost, these Gentiles received the Holy Ghost. These Gentiles, who were unclean. You know, they were they were sort of to be shunned, and yet they received the Holy Ghost. Now, had they just turned around to Sir Peter and his mates and said, Hey, thanks for coming along, we've received the Holy Spirit, the, the guys who went with Peter would have gone. And you? really? They, they would have potentially just argued about, well, we don't, we don't know whether you have received the Holy Ghost from. But the guys who were with Peter, they had no doubt whatsoever that these Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit and that God had poured out his Holy Ghost on them because they spoke themselves. That's what they saw. And you can read that for yourself in, uh, in Acts chapter 9. But, uh, uh sorry, no. Uh, not, uh, we're at 10 and, uh, and then going on to 11. And in 11, Peter retells the story and gives a bit more context to it. Right? Um, we don't have time to look into that today. However, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is an essential step for your salvation. Now, I said that the title of this talk is What, should I, what Do I Have to Do to saved? Receiving the Holy Ghost is not something you can force. So, in, in one way, you can probably almost drop this off the list of things that you've got to do to be saved. And I'll explain why. You've got to repent. No one else can do that for you. No one else can do that for me. No one else can decide that I'm going to change my ways and head a different way and be willing to bury my old life. I've got to be baptized. I've got to be the one. And I was when when, when I got baptized. I was the one who went to a pastor and said, "I want to be baptized." Why do not want to do that? I want to bury my old life i to start a new life. I've got to be the one who does that. No one else can do that for me. When it comes to receiving the Holy Spirit, I don't get to choose. That's God's choice. I can ask God for the Holy Spirit, and in fact we are commanded to ask God for the Holy Spirit. But I don't get to choose when God gives me the Holy Spirit. And we can see, if, maybe we'll just turn to it. This is an interesting scripture in in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and in verse 12, But as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If we're going to be born again, the ultimate life comes from the Holy Spirit, And that Holy Spirit is handed out, not of the will of men. You can't go to God and go, God, here I am, save me. And then then go away and go, Right, I'm saved. Because I told God I'm saved. He goes, I'm not interested in that. I look at your heart. And when your heart is ready, when you have genuinely repented, when you when you are determined to follow my ways, when you are at that point I will give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God's anointing. It's God's seal on you to say that He has accepted your repentance and He's willing to give you that new life. You can't manufacture a new life for yourself. In the same way that when when you were, um, when you were conceived and, and born, that wasn't of your will. You didn't decide, right, I'm the secret floating around out here in the ether, I'm going to land in that person and I'm going to be born. That's not how it works. The new life was given to you as a gift. And it's exactly the same with this new life. You, sure, you choose to lay down your old life. That's your choice. God's acknowledgement of your choice to lay down your old life is his new life by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the receiving of the Holy Ghost is an absolutely essential step for your salvation. You can't go to God and give Him your heart. You can't go and and, and and accept Jesus as your personal Saviour. That doesn't work because that's all based on the will of man or the will of the flesh. And, and we see here that it's not based on the, the, the new life that in verse 13 it says, which were born in a new life, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It's got nothing to do with you. You can want it, but it comes from God. And this is why we liken it to something like a contract. And in fact, testament is like a contract. Testament is like a, a, a will, like a like a like a legal agreement. In that we can go to God and say, God, I I abhor my old life. I, I want it to go far away from me, and you've given me the ability to repent from that, turn away from that. I don't want anything to do with my old life anymore, I'm willing to bury my old life. Lord Please, I need a new life. That's your gift. What do I need to do to be saved? That's your gift. The gift God does is extend you His seal and it says, he my Holy Spirit. And by the way, I'll prove to you it's my Holy Spirit by backing it up with the final we'll of Step three is to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then the fourth step, which we're not going to get time to spend terribly much time on, but it's probably the most important step for most of us who are here today, and also, potentially, the hardest. Step four is to walk on in the way of the Lord. I'm going to read you a couple of scriptures. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all loneliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another scripture, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Another scripture, That you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto His kingdom and glory. There's lots of times where it talks about our walk in the Lord. And it is a walk. When a when a baby's newborn, it doesn't get up and run a run a marathon. It's got to learn how to walk first. And this is what happens. When we get baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, we receive this gift of a new life, and we start off as babies and we make lots of mistakes. Things are all wonky and you know, we don't quite we don't we make a mess of things and and we need someone to come along and clean up all the time. And, and we need a lot of help when, when we're a newborn baby. And then as we get a bit older, we start to be able to sort of look after ourselves a bit better. We see that when we're going to sort of head off the path a bit, we're able to correct and we're going to pray about things. And we're able to go, Lord, I need your help with that. Lord, this is really good. need to pieces. I need your help with that. And we, we can start to sort of stand on our own feet spiritual. We can always, we can also get to a point where, you know, we're, we're starting to walk fairly stable and we've got a really good solid knowledge of the Lord. And then we sort of become like spiritual teenagers sometimes and we are sort of like, hey, I can do this on my own. And we're trying to start leaving the Lord out of the picture. And we can, we're, we're going along beautifully. And that we're not. And we start to make a mess of our life. There are a lot a lot of reasons why when when these first three scriptures are talking about walking worthy, a walk, our walk, is a a great analogy for what we're doing now. For those of us who have been baptized and spirit-filled and 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 have repented, walking in the ways of the Lord is a great analogy. The Lord doesn't want us to strip. He doesn't want us to just Exhaust ourselves by just thrashing ourselves every second of the day, running 20 million miles an hour straight towards the, we're gonna burn ourselves out. The well, Lord says, so walk through like one step? Because sometimes we can't see beyond one step as far as what the Lord's got in hand for us. And if, 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 we're trying to, you know, trying to do everything that's free, then the Lord goes, no, oh, I haven't actually lived up the park.' with you yet course about The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps, the individual steps are ordered by the Lord. And and we here have this analogy of walking wherever you use the Lord. Now most people reasonable level of reasonable levels of levels of fitness, if we needed to, like if all of a sudden, you know, we were suddenly put a horse on a horse mark or whatever, most people can walk consistently for hours every day. You can't do that. Simply. And, and the Lord here encourages us that this walking worthy is a walk, and it's not it's not we sit down and you know just plump ourselves down beside the, the road and and say it's all too hard and, and and give up. We have to keep stepping on right the walk. Uh, First Peter chapter four. Like I said, this is probably the bit that's uh, most important to to many of us here today. But it's also the hardest. Verse 12, Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice. So we see here a bit of uh, a bit of the uh Peter was one of the sort of the head pastors of, of the of the early church, and he's writing to basically sort of everyone who's scattered around in the various churches, and he says here, uh, beloved, think not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to you. We're going to come up against stuff. Being born of water and the Spirit doesn't suddenly give us a free pass through all of life's tribulations. Stuff's still going to happen to us. But we now have the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us and comfort us through that time. And as many of us are able to testify, when we are in trouble or when there are when there are things that come against us having the Lord able to stand with us and, and, and God guide us and help us is incredibly comforting. And we're able to stand up to situations and, and and make our way through situations that we never would have been able to do without the Holy Spirit. And so we find that the Holy Spirit becomes uh, a central part of our walk. While well, we're talking on that Romans chapter two. Once again I encourage you, each each one of these passages, go home, read it, read it in, in context. I'm gonna just Pick one verse here in Romans chapter 2. Verse 7. To them who by patient continuance, patient continuance, in well-doing, seek for glory and honour. So for those, for those of us who are patiently seeking for glory and honour and immortality, to them it says, eternal life. If you're patiently continuing in your seeking of glory, honour and immortality, the result will be eternal life. Our walk isn't going to be something which is just this, this breeze that we just cruise on through. The Lord goes, You're going to need some patience and resilience. We're going to, there's going to be times when you're going, What's going on here, Lord? This doesn't seem right. And uh, we've talked about that on many occasions before. But the point is, for those who patiently continue in their seeking of Glory and honour and immortality, the result will be eternal life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll off here. Now, a side note before I conclude sometimes steps 1, 2, and 3 happen in slightly different orders. Right? They're all important. But sometimes people receive the <laughs> Holy Spirit before they even get baptised. That's okay. It happened in the Bible. It happened to me. I received the Holy Spirit before I got baptised. Sometimes people get baptized before they receive the Holy Spirit. Repentance is an important step. But the great thing about repentance is, as as one brother and Adelaide recently gave a talk about, repentance is not a one-trick pony. It's not a a, a one-and-done. Repentance is something which remains part of our walk through the rest of our walk. We're continually assessing our lives, and this is part of our walk, we're continually assessing our lives and going, what is this new way? let we go? Ooh, on. That's repentance. Repentance is always continually turning away from your way and turning towards the Lord's way, and it continues right through your walk. It's essential for your salvation. You're not going to get anywhere without repentance, but it's an ongoing thing. And so it's not step one done right. Well, I can forget about repentance. Repentance happens forever up. Right? Like I I said, steps one, two and three. We, we tend to just list them. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. That's because it's basically the order that Peter laid out in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 of verse 38, if I encourage you to go and read it yourself. But, they can happen in different orders. So don't be concerned. You can receive the Holy Spirit before you get baptized. You can be baptized before you receive the Holy Spirit. Both ways work. What we're talking about about walking on step four has to be the one that continues on, you know, and and th- that's got an end to it. Right? We see here in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse fourteen. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we do, we wouldn't have got baptized if we didn't believe that. Even so, them also which sleep in Jesus, so people who passed away. Which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself say that again, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now let's talk about how it work and why it works without us. What it's saying here is that Jesus, who was raised up from the earth, is coming back to the earth. And he's going to come back for a purpose, and that is, he's going to come back to end this age. He's actually going to say, stop, enough, things have gone far enough, you guys have messed things up enough, that I'm falling full Stop now. At that time, it says that those who have gone to sleep in the Lord, those who've done step one, two and three, and to a certain extent four, when, when they've fallen asleep in the Lord, they've been baptized, they've repented, continually, they've received the Holy Spirit and they're walking on, when they've fallen asleep in the Lord, it says that they will be raised up first to meet the Lord. Why they go first? I don't know. But that's the way the scripture says it's going to happen. For the Lord himself shall send a Verse seventeen. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, this was written to a bunch of people who were already spirit-filled. They'd already been baptized, they'd already done steps 1, 2, and 3, and Paul says here, if you're continuing in step 4, when Jesus returns, and let's say it happened this afternoon, 3.27 this afternoon, all of a sudden, uh, full time, it's over, Jesus Christ comes back. The first thing that happens is that everyone who's fallen asleep in the Lord is raised up to meet the Lord. The next thing that happens is that those of us who've carried out steps one, two, three, and 4, we're walking along in the Lord, those of us who've done that will be caught up to meet the Lord as well. And then starts another thousand years, which go are going through, but they're not going through today. It's a really interesting time and I love dwelling on it, but we're not going to get started with that just today. The mechanism doesn't work if that applies to everybody in the world. If being a good bloke or a good lass is enough, then there wouldn't need to be this mechanism. Because Jesus could just come back and go, Oh, you're all good. That's all good. That's great. Right. No, ain't nothing to do here. Off I go. We know that's not the case. We know that everywhere we look in every natural system things are broken, things are corrupt, things are going in the wrong direction. And human beings occasionally sort of head things in the right direction every so often. But ultimately, human beings, when they're left to their own devices, things tend to go from bad to worse. The Lord's coming back because we need to be set free from that. The Lord's given us the Holy Spirit and the baptism experience to be able to demonstrate to Him that we want to do things His way. If we're already demonstrating that we want to do things His way, that we're obedient, if we're obedient to His way, then we are in a position to continue that eternal life with Him when He comes back. If we're not, then Mark chapter 16 applies. There's an alternative. We have a, a society where we have Free freedom of choice. About many things, we can choose to do different things, and in, and in fact, you can, I could if I wanted to, and I said, well, I don't know why pick up poles, but I could take my golf club and go across the front window of the and start laying into the front window of the and smash them off. I've got the choice to do that if I wanted to. I've got a, I've got a golf club, I've got arms, I don't have a golf club, I've got so. so I could borrow a golf club and I could go and start laying into the windows at that hole. I've got the choice to go and do that. It's a stupid thing to do, but I've got the choice to go and do that. What I don't have the choice of is the consequences that come from going and doing something stupid like that. I don't get to choose the consequences of that. And the consequences might include bringing a sheet of like glass down on my own head, which could be fatal. I don't get to choose whether that consequence applies to me or not. I'm going to smash this window, but I don't like the fact that the glass is going to fall on me. You don't get to choose whether the police come and put some nice bracelets on you and take you off for a bit of a rest somewhere. You don't get to choose that. And it's the same way with the fact that we have a free will choice about how we approach the law. What we don't get to choose is the consequences of how we approach the law. And unfortunately, that's the part that the world doesn't like focusing on too much today. The world loves having free will choice at every turn. The world loves being able to choose whatever it wants to do. It doesn't like the fact that it doesn't get to choose consequences of the choices. The Lord has given us, from early on, the insight to decide which way we want to go. And he's laid out for us a path whereby we can avoid the consequences of bad, bad choices that we make. He says, if you make good choices, I've got great Consequences for you in place. We shall, uh, let's read in the end of verse 17 To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, when or comfort one another with these words. If you've done steps 1, 2, 3, and 4, you can take great comfort in these words. If you haven't, then we encourage you today, and, and, and we need to be encouraging everyone we meet. But this is what the Bible says about how we can be saved. What do you have to do to be saved? The Bible gives us instruction. We can hand those instructions off people and unfortunately we have to be very careful about how we go about that because we can't just go marching up to people and go, handle burn It doesn't work. That's not going to work. So we need to be wise as how as to how we go and talk to people about what it is the Lord's got the Lord's got. But we do also need to be continuous in our in our going out and talking to people and offering them the option. Because if we've got the opportunity and we're not using that opportunity, then the Lord's going to say, Why not? Why didn't you use the opportunity to help save someone else when you had the opportunity? You could have told that person the consequences of their action and they could have had an opportunity to change it, And you did. So we need to be continually talking to people offering them the choice that I've completely run out of time. Steps one, two, three, four ends up meeting meaning meaning that we meet the Lord in the air. Wherefore comfort one another with these words and I'll do it. Amen.